My name is Judy Wiseman, and um, I'm very um, pleased to welcome you to this event, which is a joint event um, of the Gender Institute and the Sociology Department um, on budgeting for gender equality. Um, oh, international examples, that's yours. The overall title is, Is Government Economic Policy Fair to Women? We've got four really terrific speakers, and um, I'm not going to say very. I'm, I'm going to give very short introductions because I want to give them um, time to speak. Um, the first three speakers, sort of at that end, are all members of the Women's Budget Group, which is an independent organisation that promotes gender equality in economic policy. I must say I'm a very great um, fan of this group and I've been following their work for a very long time and they really do absolutely crucial work in analysing the differential impact that government expenditure has on men and women. And as a result I think there is much more awareness um, of these issues and at times um, there have been uh, great successes of, in of increasing um, a fairer allocation um, of resources to women. Um, Women's budgeting, this particular kind of gender budgeting, I'm very proud to say actually started in Australia in um, 1984 with the Hawke Labor government and it's become now sort of quite um, a movement, I'd say a widespread movement and at least 40 countries and perhaps more now have taken up this exercise and have been kind of doing these gender budgets so I think it's an absolutely fantastic thing. Um, I think this work is incredibly important, um, and I think there's a daily, particularly um, at, at moments uh, when David Willits, for example, our university minister, um, recently blamed feminism for male working class unemployment, saying that feminism trumped egalitarianism. And I'm confident that this evening you'll get rather a different story and have some evidence um, to put against such assertions. Um, from, you know, rather intelligent people, I would say, on the whole. So let me now introduce our distinguished speakers. Um, the first speaker will be Diane Elson, who's a professor of sociology at the University of Essex. Diane, um, you know, like all of our, our first three speakers, has done extensive work on gender-responsive budgeting. Um, and one of the things uh, she's written an important uh, publication is Budgeting for Women's Rights, Monitoring Government Budgets for Compliance with CEDAW. And this was published by the United Nations Development Fund for Women. She's currently editing a book on macroeconomic policy and human rights in the USA and Mexico, and I'm sure doing hundreds of other things, as is the case with all of these speakers, all hyperactive. Um, the next speaker is Sue Himmelwhite, who's a professor of economics at the Open University. And Sue has um, carried out research on the economics of household and caring and the gender implications of economic policy for many years. She's had numerous um, projects funded by the ESRC, the Equal Opportunities Commission, and recently has been president of the International Association of Feminist Economists. Um, another group that I'm a, a great fan of who have a fabulous journal um, that I follow and if I could do you know, as many things as I'd like to do I would be sort of engaged um, with that association too. I happen to know that Sue could have had a great career as a mathematician and I'm very grateful that she instead turned her mind um, to gender economics. Um, the next speaker is Dr. Claire Annesley, who's a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Manchester. Claire is a member of the European Commission's network of experts 
in the fields of gender equality, social inclusion, health and long-term care. She's written on gender aspects of welfare and she'll bring a political science uh, perspective to bear. So we've got an economist, a sociologist um, and a political scientist, um, all of whom are probably political economists as well, depending on the kind of um, description you might give them. And finally, I'm delighted that uh, B. Campbell could join us. She's an award-winning journalist, author, broadcaster and campaigner. She's uh, been awarded several honorary doctorates, which I didn't know until I've known B for, you know, 30 odd years, but I hadn't really known that you had honorary doctorates. But I did know that she ran for the uh, Green Party as a parliamentary candidate in the last election. In 2009, she was awarded a well-deserved OBE for her services to equality. And so she's really uniquely uh, qualified uh, to comment on the issues uh, we've got before us tonight. I've asked the speakers to only speak for about 10 minutes, which I know is terribly kind of cruel, but I did want to leave time for kind of, you know, a discussion and questions and things, and they've agreed um, to stick by this. So I'll now turn over to the first speaker, Diane Elson. Thank you. Okay, so I want to start off the discussion um, by just introducing a few things about government budgets and then putting this issue of budgeting for gender equality in international perspective, because I gather we've probably got an international audience with people from uh, different countries around the world, so although we'll be concentrating in a lot of our discussion on the UK, uh, also wanted to give you some examples from other countries. So just first about uh, government budgets, expenditure, revenue, deficits and debts. Uh, so when we're talking, thinking about budgeting for gender equality, we can be dealing with all of these issues. Uh, the issue of expenditure on public services and infrastructure and income transfers, uh, the revenue that governments raise through direct taxes like income tax and indirect taxes like VAT, uh, by user charges for public services, uh, by royalties if they've got uh, mineral resources, uh, various kinds. Um, and deficits, of course, is when expenditure is greater than revenue. Deficit is a problem, that word, because it kind of sounds a bad thing. Uh, when we say something that there's a deficit, it's, it sounds a rather derogatory term, as if it's signaling a problem. But actually, there are times when it's absolutely appropriate to have a budget deficit, uh, and uh, particularly appropriate in economic downturns. And of course, one of the big debates in the UK at the moment is about, um, uh, is it appropriate to go on running uh, a budget deficit for how long, uh, to what extent? Fortunately, in this country, we don't have balanced budget legislation, whereas in some countries they do. Uh, the United States, at the, uh, the level of the individual states, most of them have balanced budget legislation where they're not allowed to run deficits, although that's not true at the federal level. Uh, debt. Debt is another um, perhaps rather negative-sounding word. Credit sounds better, I agree, uh, but the other side of credit is debt. And uh, we have debt involved because governments borrow. They borrow because streams of revenue don't exactly match up with streams of expenditure. Uh, and uh, it's entirely appropriate for governments to borrow to fund investment, although we may have a debate about exactly what we count as investment. And 
In the women's budget group, we've tended to argue investment shouldn't be seen just as roads and bridges and things like that. It should also be seen as uh, health services and education services, which are building up people's capacities that will also uh, be of value in the future, just like roads and, buses and uh, bridges. Um, we hear quite a lot at the moment about uh, debt and deficits uh, in, in Europe. I just want to point out that the UK at the moment, although it currently has quite a large deficit to GDP ratio, doesn't have a large debt to GDP ratio. The, debt to, uh, the, the deficit to GDP ratio in the UK is 10.4%, uh, which is one of the, about the third highest in the EU. But when you look at debt, actually, uh, the debt to GDP ratio of the UK is lower than that of Germany. It's at 80%, whereas in Germany it's 83%. So it's important to uh, bear in mind these issues uh, when you're reading newspapers or hearing politicians talk about um, debt problems. So that's just an introduction, those of you who may not know too much about government budgets, of the key areas that we're going to be looking at when we think about budgeting for gender equality. Now, when you start talking about budgeting for gender equality to economists, they often, who've been trained in mainstream economics, they often say, well, what, what are you talking about? I and mean, budgets are, are gender neutral. We don't mention men or women when we're setting out the budget. Uh, the budget's for everybody in this country. Uh, and uh, why are you uh, raising these issues about gender? But when you look more closely at the budget, you can see that it can reduce or reinforce gender inequality, depending on how expenditures and revenues are organized, depending on the policies with respect to budget deficits and debt. But it's important to point out that budgeting for gender equality we're not implying that 50% of tax revenue should be paid by males and 50% by females because women's incomes are lower than those of men. And so you wouldn't expect uh, that uh, women would be contributing the same amount of tax revenue as men. And the same is true on the expenditure side. If we're talking about budgeting for gender equality, we're not implying that 50% of spending on each and every program should accrue to females and 50% to males. That might be appropriate as a benchmark for some programs, say education, uh, but not appropriate to other programs, say um, poverty-focused programs. If there is women disproportionately poor, you'd expect more than 50% of the spending to um, uh, transfer income or provide programs uh, for poor people should go to women. So you always have to contextualize uh, the issue of equality and think carefully about what benchmarks you're going to use when you're talking about budgets and gender equality. As Judy uh, said, uh, some governments have begun to budget for gender equality. I'd say there are many more countries where there's been some kind of discussion about this and some kind of training program for officials or some kind of meeting for parliamentarians than there have been governments that actually seriously uh, have begun to do something. So that's just um, a, a brief list. Australia, as Judy said, as a pioneer, gave it up when there was a change of government uh, away from the, the Labour government, uh, reinstated it to, to some extent and in a different form uh, when Labour got, got back in again. Um, India has... Uh, 
Uh, now, each time the Minister of Finance uh, at, uh, in Delhi presents the All India Budget, there is a document that um, uh, shows um, how much of the money is going to programs that are particularly targeted to women. And they also have a policy for some of the poverty programs uh, that there should be a 30% of the money or 30% of the beneficiaries should be women. And there's a lot of work going on training officials and also at the state levels in India, there's also work going on there. South Korea, women parliamentarians pushed for a law when they started reforming their budget process, uh, a law that said uh, they should introduce gender budgeting and again um, uh, take gender into account in uh, preparing the budget and make an annual report to parliament. And they're busy uh, now uh, working out exactly how they're going uh, to do this. They've asked the uh, Korean um, Women's Development Institute, which is an autonomous research institute, they're funded by the government, uh, to do some research and, and figure out how to do this. Um, Morocco has made very serious attempts. They have a very big document in Arabic, French and English, which accompanied their last budget and uh, tries to look at the gender equality implications of all of their expenditure, not just expenditure targeted uh, to women and girls, not just health and education, but also thinking about things like transport. Uh, it's it's uh, quite difficult to do this, um, uh, but they've, uh, they really are having a, a go at doing something quite comprehensive. Austria has even changed their constitution. Uh, to uh, to make reference to gender budgeting and there's a law in process there uh, to institutionalize um, gender budgeting in the, again in the context of reforms of the budget uh, in Sweden uh, they've gone about this very thoroughly thinking about all kinds of gender equality indicators to use for all of their public expenditure and have uh, very good reports that accompany their annual budget that look at um, different, as uh, different kind of gender economics aspects, like uh, what's the relative cost of being a parent if you're a woman and if you're a man? Or uh, why are women in old age um, poorer than men in old age? And you can find a lot more examples of this with a lot more detail and, and what's been going on in a lot of other countries too at that website that I've put up for you. Just mention that in uh, in the EU, the European structural funds, um, which provide expenditure uh, funds to to fund various kinds of expenditure, require a gender impact assessment. And in the UK, the Equalities Act um, 2010 requires a gender impact assessment. You'll be hearing more about this, I think, from Sue. Uh, but one of the problems is. Okay, there may be a rule or a law that says they have to do a gender impact assessment, but what do they actually what do they actually produce? How well do they do it? What do they understand this to mean? So um, challenges of budgeting for gender equality. I think there are many challenges, but um, three in particular. One is moving beyond simply measuring and reporting on expenditure on programs that are specifically targeted to women and girls or specifically targeted to equal opportunities. That's the easiest first step, but it never amounts to a, more than a very small percentage of the budget, 3%, 4% at most. So you've got to start looking at all the rest of the budget as well. 
the second is, okay, you may, in a situation where the government and government bodies are supposed to do gender impact assessments, but do they do them adequately? And then do they introduce measures to mitigate any adverse impacts on gender equality or even change the measure altogether? So do they do them adequately? Do they act on them? And then at the moment, of course, in Europe, we're particularly thinking about can you maintain gender equality objectives even if deficits are being reduced? Well, last year, Andalusia, the regional government of Andalusia in Spain, which is a very big regional government, has a huge budget, uh, did seem to man manage this. They um, cut their total expenditure by 1.4%. Uh, but the expenditure on programs that they had identified as priorities for gender equality rose by 2.7%, and the share of these programs that they think are priorities for gender equality, the share of the total budget rose, it's well over 50% now. Uh, so it's not impossible, uh, but it's not what's happening here, as you'll hear later. So I just want to end by mentioning the because we're in an academic institution, the importance of independent analysis by gender equality advocates. Uh, even when governments start to do uh, something they call gender budgeting, of course, they're always very keen to identify uh, we have now introduced this nice program here which is going to be very beneficial to women. When I was in Australia, just after the Labour government had got back in again, they said, oh yes, we're going to reintroduce um, a gender budget, a women's budget statement with the budget, and look, here are all the wonderful things we're now doing for women, like introducing um, comprehensive uh, parental leave scheme. Uh, but of course, you also need a critical view about what aren't they telling you about uh, things that they're doing that might um, undermine gender equality or things that they're not doing that could promote gender equality. And independent analysis is really important. So these are just three examples. One is the Women's Budget Initiative in South Africa, which was a collaboration between researchers and parliamentarians. It was very important in helping women newly elected to the post-apartheid government to have some sharp questions to ask to the Minister of Finance. You can find more about their work on the Redasa website um, listed there. In Tanzania, there's a group called the Tanzania, uh, sorry, it should be Tanzania Gender Equality Program. Um, that's their website, and they've done a lot of work on analysing the budget in Tanzania and um, uh, uh, pressing to get various changes. And then the group that I belong to, the UK Women's Budget Group, that's our website. Um, you'll be hearing more about what we've done from Sue and Claire. Uh, but just to say, uh, to encourage anybody who gets interested in this uh, field to uh, join us if you're in the UK, join one of these other groups if you're in another country, and uh, contribute um, your analysis uh, to promote budgeting for gender equality. some assistance to. Thanks. Hello, well, um, I'm here as a member of the UK Women's Budget Group, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about what happens when you don't do gender analysis of a budget. 
Um, despite there being a law in this country um, that gender inequality impact statement has to be put out by all public bodies about the whatever they're doing, uh, the UK government didn't do any gender analysis of its emergency budget in June 2010. They didn't actually analyse it according to any other inequalities either, except by income um, deciles. Um, so we thought this really needed doing, so the Women's Budget Group did do a gender analysis of that emergency budget. And also we did this of the October Comprehensive Spending Review and then of the recent budget that we've just had. The Women's Budget Group, as Dan's telling you, we're sort of leaking out little bits of information about it as, as this goes on. Um, we're about, we have a sort of mailing list of about 200 people who get involved using that, sharing their expertise as, as appropriate. Most of, most of us are academics, some of us are members of NGOs and trade unions. Not all, not all women, though mostly women, and we all contribute to doing such analysis. So the normal process is that we, we pull together the work of a number of people to produce this. So I'm drawing on the work of a number of members of the Women's Budget Group. Um, for the emergency budget, in fact, Yvette Cooper commissioned some analysis, gender analysis, you may remember, um, which she got the House of, House of Commons Library to do, and they did a really good job. Um, and they showed that of, there was £8 billion net revenue raised through, this is just the changes in personal taxes and benefits, so not all the changes that happened through that emergency budget, not, for example, the changes in VAT, um, and not some projected changes in spending on services, for example, but the changes in personal taxes and rev benefits by 2014 to 15. And some of, these, some of these changes are taking time to, to work through because, for example, a there's a, been a change in indexation. That sounds like a really sort of boring technical thing, a change from indexing um, by the retail price index to, retail, to changing by the consumer price index. But this will have a big effect. It will have a big effect on those people who pay, oh, who depend on benefits because their benefits will be uprated less than they would otherwise. It'll have a big effect on those people who pay taxes because the tax thresholds will rise less than they would otherwise. Um, so the, looking, looking to 2014-15, by that time, £8 billion pounds of revenue, net revenue would be would be raised by the emergency budget, 75% of which came from women. That's 75% from the poorer of the two genders in this society. Um, and why did this happen? Because this is because women lost far more from benefits because the changes in benefits were to decrease them. If you remember particularly, there was housing benefit, but also the changes in the uprating of benefits. And women gained far less from tax breaks. There were also some tax breaks in that emergency budget, a change in the personal allowance. So the net result was that women were basically paying in this case. The Women's Budget Group did some analysis then of the October Comprehensive Spending Review. Now this is the... Spending on services, on public services. Um, and you don't get the figures of who, the men and women who are using those public services directly from what's announced in the budget. Some analysis is needed of that. You have to find out who uses what. 
Um, and we were very lucky to have to be fortunate to be able to cooperate with Howard Reed from Landman Economics, who was doing some work for the TUC on this, in which he, using a model of the whole economy, um, he had some representative households in that, and he worked out using a number of different data sets what such a representative household would be likely to use of public services, and then looked at that for the economy as a whole and said these households will lose services worth so much, such percentage of their income, these households will lose services worth a different percentage of their, in his in their income. And the TUC asked him to do this broken down by income deciles. And we thought, once he's done that, we can break down those households by different characteristics. It doesn't have to be just income deciles. We can use different ones. So we asked him, would he look at his data, or would he let us have his data, so that we could break it down by according to gendered characteristics of households. And this is what happened. These are different types of households. Um, so on the first, the, the first column is single Households who just have one person in it, no children. Next, alone parents. Next, couple without children, couple with children, single pensioners, couple pensioners, and so on. And this is, on the, on the vertical scale, is how much the services that they would lose through the cuts were worth to them. Now, when we say worth to them, what we really mean is how much did they cost the government? How much would they be costing? Because we don't have a way of assessing how much they were actually worth to people. If you were actually to go out and buy them on the market as opposed to being given them by your local authority, it would probably actually cost you more than it costs the local authority to provide them or the central government. So this, if, if anything, is an underestimate of the, the value of those public services that are lost. Now, if you're poor, the value of the public services that you use is probably more than your actual cash income when you think about the health services, the education, and so on. So probably for the bottom two deciles of the income distribution, the value of public services is greater than cash income. So cuts in public services may have a very big effect, as we can see. And of, of these different groups, you can see that lone parents suffered a cut worth 18.5% of their cash income, and that compares with just under 7% for households in general. Why do lone parents cut, suffer so much from those cuts? Well, you can see this by the, the breakdown into different colours of those columns. But like all parents, lone parents are hit by the education cuts. But, all, but these are education cuts for schools. But more than people in couples, they're, cut, they're also hit by cuts to further and higher education because lone parents are more likely to go out and try and educate themselves again after being parents, after having children. Um, they're also hit by ha cuts in housing and social care. And then, of course, because they're poorer, these cuts form a larger proportion of their income. Um, now, there's no particular gender breakdown within lone parents. Lone parents who are men suffered a cut of roughly the same size as lone parents who are women. However, 90% of lone parents are women. So this is a gender effect. Okay, in age, the, 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 the group that suffered most from the spending cuts will suffer, because of course these haven't all come in yet, are largely women. But if we look within pensioners, 
we can see um, I'm afraid my Excel skills weren't sufficient to get me to get to get it to produce the same colours on this slide as the previous one. Um, but that single pensioners um, suffered far more from the cuts than couple pensioners. But within them, female single pensioners suffered more than male single pensioners. Um, and of course, there are far more female single pensioners than male single pensioners. So again, even if those columns came out the same length, there would be a gender effect in that. And why is that? Well, single pensioners are far more likely to need social care than couple pensioners. This is because they haven't got somebody else in the household to look after them. They're also likely to be older by the time that their spouse dies, and particularly if they're women, since they live longer. Older pensioners are the, high, are the heaviest users of social care, and you can see this in the pink. The pink area is, is the effect of... Sorry, this whatever colour you call that. Um, is the effect of the cuts in social care. Um, single pensioners are also more likely to live in social housing, in fact, slightly more likely if they're men. An interesting thing that you might like to keep an eye on is that transport, cuts in transport haven't as yet made, had much effect on pensioners, but we'll see what happens in the future on that. And then, of course, women are poorer, so the cuts form a larger proportion of their income. So if we look at households by gender overall, this is putting them together according to the proportions they... they um, the proportions of single women according to the different types types that they are, we see that single women suffered cuts far greater than single men or couples. And again, mostly driven by cuts in social care and housing, and particularly that effect of, higher, of further and higher education. And then that women are poorer, and therefore the cuts form a large proportion of their income. Now, I think one thing to bear in mind is these effects are large. They're not small things. They're not sort of very marginal little changes. Losing 12% of your income is a big change. Um, we also looked at gender in another way to see what were the effects of different earning, um, of what type of earners you had in a household. So we found that households without earners in them were, were hit particularly hard. And bear in mind this is we're now talking about only the cuts in services we're not talking about the welfare the cuts in welfare benefits these are literally the cuts in services they're hit particularly hard because they are more dependent on public services than others households with two earners are not so badly hit households with male earners come off next best and with only female earners um, less well so what's obvious from that is having a male wage coming into your household protects you better than if you've only got women's wages coming in. All right, another part, of, though, of the, of the um, effect of the expenditure cuts were there, were, there were, were job losses in the public sector. Now, already women's unemployment is rising faster than men's, and this is before we've got the majority of public sector job losses. And the cuts are predicted to lead to up to half a million public sector job losses in total. Now, women actually are more in the sectors that we were told were protected than men. 
the health and education that we were told were going to be protected. Though, in fact, as, as we've seen through the months since this analysis was done, um, which was at the time of the Comprehensive Spending Review, in fact, there have been large cuts in employment in health and education. Um, but in, despite that, even at that time, we knew that there would be more job losses for women than men. And one way you can look at this is and said, during the recession, men lost their jobs faster than women, but it's women who are paying for this. Women are paying for their recovery. There's another interesting aspect of this, which is do some analysis done by Jerome Denow, who's sitting over in the corner there. Um, the gender pay gap is smaller in the unprotected areas of the public sector than in the protected areas. So if we get more cuts in the unprotected area, the, the gender pay gap in the, public, in the public sector is going to increase. We're also supposed to get public sector jobs replaced by private sector jobs. The gender pay gap in the public sector overall is much less than in the private sector. So if we get a switch from, first of all, protected sectors, sorry, from unprotected sectors to protected sectors, and then from protected sectors to the private sector, we're going to get an increase in the gender pay gap. So the gender pay gap will widen within the public sector and in the economy as a whole. So that's all, nearly all I wanted to say, but I just wanted to say just one word about the recent budget we've just had. One of the things you're supposed to do if you do a gender impact analysis is to, is to think if, you've, if the policies you had required you to do things that, that had bad effects on gender equality, is to see if you could mitigate some of those effects by other changes. So this was an opportunity for the government. Perhaps it was going to bring in measures in the recent budget to mitigate some of the effects of what it had done so far. Well, it did increase alcohol and tobacco taxes, and that hits households with men more heavily than households with them in them. But however, these effects were dwarfed by the rise in, the VA, in VAT that came in in January. And VAT, as a tax on nearly everything you spend, has a higher incidence on poor households, working age single women with and without children, and households without a male earner. So that just reinforced what was going on. The, Mar the March project also included two tax giveaways there was another increase in the personal allowance, and that gives 514 million to women taxpayers, but 680 million to men taxpayers. That works in the same direction again. And then we had a fuel tax cut, and fuel, women are heavier users of public transport, men tend to drive more and further than women, so the fuel tax cut went mostly to male, single and couple households and particularly to the, those with male earners in them. Okay, I'm going to pass you to Claire, who's going to, after all this, these numbers, is going to do a more... Uh,
Flummox at the first step. So, thank you. First of all, thank you very much for um, the invite to um, this event the, this evening. It's a real um, honour to be talking here. And what is on such an important day today? It's the first um, anniversary of the coalition government. So, happy birthday, coalition government. Um, and I think we can use the. <laughs> um, I think we can use this event to, um, to kind of reflect on um, what this government has done for, um, for women and for gender equality. And I think uh, we can see after on this, the occasion of its first birthday that what the government has done for, for women is actually um, quite a kind of a sustained attack on um, women's incomes, on women's services, um, and on um, women's jobs. Um, I think what we've seen is um, a kind of a cumulative effect of a series of individual measures made at a number of different decisions in budgets and the comprehensive spending review, but also in policy reform, um, where we see that I think this adds up to a real threat to, to gender equality, um, which isn't fair to women, to answer the question of the, of the talk today, which is affecting women in quite acute ways now, and I think which also, if this government kind of continues, is going to um, get worse. So we can celebrate their birthday by reflecting on, um, on some of these um, issues. Um, let me start by saying, you know, if we're talking about the fact, which I am, about the fact that they're undermining some of the key kind of cornerstones of, of gender equality um, in, in the UK, let's think about what this might mean. Gender equality, I think to me and to other members of the, of the gender budget group, means equal opportunities to quality paid employment. It means um, access to an adequate independent income for women. And I think what we might add to that list as well is um, equal rights for men and women to, um, to care, to, um, to be able to care for um, family members, children, um, and other people. Um, and what we've heard from Sue and um, uh, is that the coalition's me um, measures in the June 2010 budget the March 2011 budget, the comprehensive spending review from last year, have gradually eroded um, some of these kind of cornerstones of, of gender equality. They've all been individual measures, but they have this cumulative effect. Um, and we can ask ourselves, what, you know, what's behind this? Is it that, you know, despite their protestations that their measures are going to be fair, that, um, that everybody is going to kind of contribute to this economic recovery equally. They say that it's going to be based on the principle of fairness. Well, actually, it's not fair. You know, is it that they don't care about um, gender or women when they think about fairness? Is it that they don't know how to do it? What Diane talked about, the, you know, the ways of, um, of doing gender budgeting um, require a certain amount of expertise. Or is it something else? Is it that there's an agenda behind what the government is doing to, um, to introduce a, a different kind of more traditional gender roles. And I'm starting to think, after this first year, that maybe it is that, um, that latter, that what their agenda is is to return um, to Britain after some progress towards gender equality and a more 
um, uh, a welfare state based on more equal rights to a return to the male breadwinner model, where, which is based on men taking paid employment, women um, having caring roles, um, and the welfare state reinforcing this through incentives or disincentives and, and barriers for, for men and women to undertake um, different roles. Um, so to sort of back up what I'm, what I'm saying, what I want to, to do is build on um, some, the analysis that the Women's Budget Group has, um, did last year in, in 2010 um, through the Emergency Budget and the Comprehensive Spending Review and, and give you a sort of a, a snapshot of three things that happened um, this year already um, in 2011 so far. Um, and these are um, its plans in the world that have been announced in the Welfare Reform Bill, the Budget, and the Pension Review. Um, and when we'll come on to talk about the Pensions Green Paper, um, I'll have a little bit better news um, in terms of gender equality. So we can hold out for a little bit of um, better news towards the end of my, um, my presentation. Um, let's start with the Welfare Reform Bill. Um, what this does is sets out proposals to um, reform the payment of, of in-work, um, out-of-work and housing benefits, um, to bring them all together for one single monthly payment to households um, on the means-tested um, basis. And the intention of this is to, is to strongly increase the incentives that exist in the welfare state to get people back to work. But what's explicit about this reform is that... Um, they're only really interesting that the government would say we're interested in getting individuals back to work, but actually when you look at the proposals in more detail, what the government is interested in is getting one person in each household into work. The Welfare Reform Bill um, proposes a very, very, um, a much stronger incentive for the primary earner to go back to work. But um, there's a, a, um, a faster benefit withdrawal rate for second earners. And what this means in practice is that second earners, the majority of whom are, are, are women, because women's wages are lower than, um, than men's um, as a whole, um, will not um, see the benefits of, of taking up employment rather than um, staying at home. And this is coupled with a decrease in the amount of compensation that the government gives to low-earning families for childcare costs and um, no explicit commitments to, um, to childcare as well. <clears throat> the purpose of this single household payment um, um, and the single monthly payment, they say, is to, is to mimic wages. It's to give um, households that are out of um, work or reliant on benefits a single income coming in each month so that they get used to um, you know, what everybody else who is working, you know, a salary. It's the idea of salary. Um, salary. So they're more attuned to um, the world of work in the, in the financial um, sense. Um, the Women's Budget Group's concern is that this could in undermine women's um, economic independence. Um, the good thing is that the government is going to allow couples to nominate whether this payment is made to the man or to um, the woman, um, but it's unclear um, how that's going to work out in practice. Pensioner credit, I think, is claimed uh, something like 70% by men rather than women. So I think it's kind of likely that it's going to, um, going to go to, to the man. It can only be split in emergencies when there's real evidence that that money's not being shared. And again, analysis that the Women's Budget Group, um, group draws on shows that actually um, um, you can't assume that 
household incomes are going to be shared fairly between members of that um, household. Another concern that we have with this monthly payment is that it's women who, are, who tend to be respond- in low-income families who tend to be responsible for the day-to-day spending, for managing monthly budgets, and families on low income often um, uh, run out of money before the end of the month, and this means that women, it's often women who have to cope with that shortfall, often by going without themselves to cater for their, their children or other people in their family. So two concerns of the Welfare Reform Bill. Firstly, that it's going to create a disincentive for, um, for uh, second earners' in, um, employment. Um, and um, secondly, that it could undermine women's economic independence. Um, Sue's already spoken a little bit about the, um, the budget, but I'm going to say um, a little bit more and hopefully hit on some other um, issues. Um, the government said that this was a neutral budget, but it's definitely not neutral um, in, in gender terms. The budget outlined very strong commitments to, to tax breaks, to promoting enterprise, and to promoting skills, but it didn't do anything to promote um, women's employment. Um, it proposed this rise in the personal allowance um, to just over 8,000 um, for starting next year, and that will lift quite a significant number of people out of tax and 56% of those will be women. But what the budget doesn't do at all is help any of the people who are learning, earning so little that they don't actually kind of qualify, but they're below the tax um, threshold. And as the Women's Budget Group put in its analysis of, of the budget, 73% of those are, are women. And it might have been better if you wanted to help the people at the poorest, to, if you wanted to help mothers who weren't earning enough to pay tax, to actually increase the amount of child benefit they were paid or, or something like that, rather than freeze it, which is what's actually happening right now. Um, the budget also has this very strong commitment to um, job growth, and the private sector is going to deliver the big solution in this country, you'll be pleased to know, um, uh, in terms of, of job growth, as the, um, the public sector um, is, is, is chipped away at. Um, firstly, this is not necessarily going to benefit women. Firstly, if they do get jobs, the gender pay gap is, is greater in the, public sect- in the private sector than it is in the public sector. Um, it's very often less compatible with caring responsibilities. Um, and thirdly, the kind of rights that, um, that, that people with caring responsibilities have um, to, um, to combine work and caring um, care are being attacked by the sort of bonfire of, of regulations that the government is um, currently um, proposing. Some of those were announced in the budget, um, others are under consultation now. So women and, um, with caring responsibilities are going to be attacked by a lack of support or a, dimin- um, a reduction of support that they have to combine those um, responsibilities. What we also see as well is that... Um, uh, that uh, that there is no evidence that, that women are taking up these, um, these jobs in the private sector. Um, figures published in, I think it was April, showed that whereas men's unemployment was redu- had been reducing for 14 months up until that date, women's unemployment had increased for, four, um, for nine months in a row. So... As Sue said, whereas men were hit by the recession, I think women are definitely not benefiting from 
um, from these opportunities um, that are supposed to present themselves in the, in the recovery. What's particularly concerning about these unemployment rates is not only that women are affected by them, but actually um, young women. A young, youth unemployment is extremely high, and, and unemployment amongst young women is exceptionally high. And so we're concerned that the investment that was um, announced in the budget for new apprenticeships um, didn't have with it any commitment to gender equality, and that the emphasis of the budget was strongly on, on science and technology, and actually there's a very strong gender segregation in, um, in apprenticeships. So, you know, women tend to do the retail, um, the caring um, apprenticeships, and apart from the fact that they are um, they're, they're poorer um, apprenticeships in terms of um, the amount of money that they get while they're doing them, the, the terms and conditions, and the, the length of them, um, they're, they're not going to benefit from um, where the investment is going <clears throat> um, for this government. Okay, I, I promised you some better news, which is um, the pension green paper. And I think this is an example of um, uh, something that's slightly more positive. And, um, and this is a green paper that's proposing um, to introduce um, a new state pension um, that would be a single tier, um, single payment. It would combine all elements of the, the basic state pension at the moment and the means-tested um, um, elements of, of, basic, of the state pension as well. And it would be set at a, a, a single level of around £140. Some figures have been floated that put it as high as £155 um, per week. What's interesting about this is that the Green Paper justifies this policy explicitly in terms of fairness for um, a number of people who are disadvantaged in the um, in, the gen, um, in terms of um, pension provision and explicitly mentions women as one of these groups. So I think if the, gov so I think if the government's doing something sort of more positive for women, it is willing to do it, so I'm um, willing to kind of talk about it. So I think it's not necessarily that it doesn't know how to help women. I think I'm increasingly thinking that it doesn't um, necessarily um, want to help um, other groups of women. There are some concerns that, um, that I have about, the Greek, um, about this pension proposal. It's for future pensioners um, only. Current pensioners will still be um, uh, living in poverty, still based on the contributory um, uh, principle, and it doesn't compensate for the loss of public services that, um, that Sue outlined um, so clearly. So, so far in to, um, 2011, and it's only May, um, there's no support for women in this shift for public to private employment um, opportunities. Um, women are not getting the jobs um, in, the pub, um, in the private sector that, um, that, um, that are um, out there. Um, I think what is concerning is that there seems to be quite an explicit acceptance that, um, that measures that disincentivise second earners, such as um, women, are seen to be justified. So this sort of shift to the male breadwinner um, model is deemed to be acceptable. And I think that the government is completely at ease with the idea that women should revert to um, go back to, um, to the house. Um, there's nothing um, that's been done to help women on, on um, uh, lowest incomes, many of those who, um, who are women, and there's nothing has been done to compensate lone parents and single pensioners for this drastic loss of um, services that they experienced due to um, October's um, spending cuts. So, um, to go back to the question of this, um, of this event tonight, um, 
I am speaking in a, um, in a personal capacity, but drawing on this, this very kind of um, uh, um, persuasive analysis that, um, that we've been doing in the, in the Women's Budget Group would um, say this government's economic policy is not fair to women. Um, these cuts are affecting people now. Um, last month, B and I um, spoke at a, um, a conference called Hard Times in, in Sheffield where hundreds of women got together to discuss exactly this issue and there were workshops in the afternoon where they were talking about their personal experiences and the room was just full of uncertainty and anxiety about how they were going to make ends meet, about how they were going to um, cope if they lost their, their jobs which were very precarious. So these cuts are hitting very deeply already now and, um, and I think there is um, worse, worse to come, I fear. Um, the Women's Budget Group um, aims to pro provide um, kind of quality analysis of these budgetary um, decisions, of spending decisions, but also responds to consultations on, um, on uh, proposals such as universal credit. So if you're interested in receiving the analysis that we do, please do sign up to um, the membership list, which you can do by following... Uh, this link, womensbudgetgroup.org.uk. And if any of you are working on um, issues related to this, when we do um, produce an analysis, we always ask members to, um, to contribute to it as well. So we'd be very grateful for any insights that you can give us as well. Um, but I shall pass now over to um, B. extensive and in most interesting analysis actually. I've learned lots of things that I didn't know about this. And now we've got um, B. Campbell to give us a commentary and hopefully something a bit more uplifting than um, what, we, what we've just been going through. What can I tell you that's uplifting about this moment that we are in? Well, not a thing, um, I'm afraid. <coughs> actually, I might tell you, however, something quite nice. Um, you mentioned OBEs. Well, they're a daft thing, really. And I got an awful lot of flack for doing it. But my friends and family said, you know, you've got to do it, you've got to do it. And my, one of my nephews said, no, you've got to do it, and you've got to go and tell her. <laughs> right? So there you are, in the presence. And this little hand comes out, and it kind of... You, you, are, you get looked at, which is a bit astounding. And um, the Queen said... And, and what is it that you do? <laughs> and I said, which is not what I would normally say, it's not my language particularly, but something like campaign for equality. And she said, and where do you do it? <laughs> and I felt like the fellow behind me who was from the Lifeboat Association <laughs> from Braemar, which sounded perfect, a perfect job for getting an OBE. Anyway, the one thing that made the whole episode worth it was this. With my F nephew's words at the back of my head, I thought, I've got 30 seconds to do something before I'm kind of in, you know, indicated, and you get indicated and signs and hieroglyphics to tell you to skedaddle. And, uh, and I said, I'm very glad that you support equality. <laughs> it was marvellous, because you know what happened? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> I might have been talking algebra or Arabic for all that it touched the royal eye and sensibility. Anyway, not to worry. 
you all know about equality. And what I want to do is to, to talk more generally about the context in which this stuff um, is being, is being organised. And I have to say that the, as a person who doesn't do sums, uh, this kind of research is absolutely indispensable. Indispensable to the government, even though it doesn't take any notice of it. Um, indispensable to us. It's part of the equipment we need to be the people we now need to become, which is very well organised, very strategic, and very well versed in what it is that we're up against. So my thoughts, the short thoughts I want to share with you, are, are really about what is this moment that we are in? Because everything that you've all said shows that the costs to women are disproportionate in terms of what this coalition government is doing, and the contribution that women will have to make to its deficit strategy is disproportionate. And what I want to add is that it's all deliberate. Nothing about this can be innocent. Not least because the caution that they have to get past the equality legislation was kind of slightly in their mind. In a sense, I think they knew they didn't have to care, insofar as they did care, which they didn't really. <laughs> and what's happening, and this is what I think we, we have to have really in our heads, because we have to know the nature of our enemy, is that within this coalition, there's a, there's a clear project, despite the talk of the kind of chaos that seems to be clacking around in Downing Street, there is a project here, and it is Thatcherism heavy. These people may have a tone and tastes that are generationally, generationally and culturally different from the atmosphere of Thatcherism, but they are the beneficiaries of Thatcherism, and they are the beneficiaries of social democracies adhesion to fundamental principles associated with the time of Thatcherism. So it's a very dangerous moment for us, because what they're doing is knowing. As I said, it cannot be innocent. And this Thatcherism heavy is about completing a project that were tactical in a certain sense during the era of Thatcherism in, in a way that is much more, in my opinion, strategic. And I'm saying that really what this amounts to is that the coalition is with great confidence orchestrating a political strategy that will complete the, the unfinished work, if you like, of Thatcherism, but it's doing it in a much more important and conducive global context. After all, in 1979 and 1980, Thatcherism was improvising something. We didn't quite know what it was going to become. Well, then we do know. We do know what the face of the future is. It's China. It's South Korea. It's Mexico. It's the, the energy and elan of neoliberalism which is shaping the template of globalisation. These were words that none of us particularly used much in 1979, uh, but you know, they're on all of our lips now. And what I want to suggest is that the kinds of things that the Women's Budget Group has illuminated with their absolutely surgical statistical um, work is to show just how neoliberalism as a hegemonic project doesn't rule the world, but it seeks to, 
neoliberalism as a hegemonic project is necessarily also neo-patriarchal. And so the gender element of this is decisive and inevitable and necessary. Why? How so? Well, one thing I want to say first is that all of this is happening in the context of, in my opinion, the exhaustion of the equality paradigm that we've all worked with, that's associated with the time that we live in, that's associated with the great reforms of social democratic governments in Europe and some of the ways that socialist states, which now no longer exist, thought about gender in the past. What is revealed is the limits of that equality paradigm, that way of thinking about what we are doing about gender. And what's happening now is that the neoliberal project is either working to dismantle the social democratic deal on gender, or is working with profoundly patriarchal, polarized societies, and mobilizing those patriarchal traditions and integrating them within a neoliberal economic project. So what this means is that really since the 1980s, we've witnessed at a global level the working classes losing their share of national incomes. That's a global trend. Inevitably, in that context, it's very difficult for women to reposition themselves as the unequal wage earners that they are. So the conditions for equal pay movements have become remarkably inhospitable. And we can see in the statistics that equal pay activism or, the, or equal pay outcomes are now quite flat. I don't think that the unequal distribution of, uh, of incomes in terms of pay is very much going to shift. What is now the case is the case. This is the face of the future. I don't think that time differential, which is decisive to many of the things that you three have been talking about, which is a highly political differential, it's about the, the distribution of unpaid work between men and women, I don't think that's going to radically shift. And throughout the world, it remains polarised between mothers and everybody else. In general, between men and women, and acutely between mothers and everybody else. And, and it's become institutionalised, and as we've seen in Britain, it's virtually impossible to imagine the conditions in which the time gap between men and women could be radically altered. There is no champion for it as we speak. What we're witnessing in all of those uh, neoliberalised economies is the withdrawal of the social state, the withdrawal of social solidarity from a relationship of rapport with women and children. So women and children are all of, in all of those situations, as here, as you've described, um, the shock absorbers of the, the great neoliberal global settlement. There are all sorts of consequences to that which you've all rehearsed. There's another one that I want to add to it. If we look at the societies which are the great pilots of this new, new uh, neoliberal deal, they're very interesting more generally about what happens to cultures of gender, if that's the right way to put it. What we witness is the militarization of states in their relationship to, to the people and the way that they police and manage the people. Heavy duty macho kinds of governments. And in the neighborhoods which experience in the most dangerous ways 
the protracted withdrawal of social welfare states. What we witness is a kind of management of space, of social space, by a hyperactive, violent form of masculinity. Crime as a context in which masculinities can be made. This is desperately important for women who are the audience and the witnesses and the victims, as are children. I'm just reading the book um, City of God, about which the movie was made. The book is better, I think, actually, than that very remarkable movie. And what's completely alarming and startling is the random deployment of violence as a resource for discontented, dispossessed young men and the disempowerment of entire neighbourhoods of women as a consequence, who of course have no other champions within the state because the state is not their friend. The consequences are disastrous, in other words. So um, what I think we are therefore thinking about here is that this coalition is confidently operating in a global context that affirms its neoliberal Thatcherite heavy project. Okay. What it tells us something that's very important, I think, for a society like this one and for European social democracies is that women cannot do without social welfareism and state welfareism. We need solidarity states. We need them to mediate our relationship to masculinity. We need them to secure public peace. We need them to be the agent of redistribution between men and women and to produce more egalitarian societies and more gender-sensitive societies. We just do. Therefore, we have to really think about what kind of states we're interested in, what kind of states and regimes work for women and which ones don't. I want to finally just... This thought kind of crosses my mind. I was crossing my mind as I was listening to all of you um, talking really serious sums and it, it brought to mind something that my dad used to say about the first night he went to an evening class a thousand years ago and he, he said the teacher said to him something marvellous gentlemen these were all men in this evening class gentlemen I'm about to liberate you from the tyranny of number and I want to slightly shift that sentence, that very beautiful sentence, um, for all of those who are not liberated yet from the tyranny of numbers. But these are very liberating numbers that you've researched and produced for all of us. Let us use them surgically and strategically to invent a new kind of women's liberation politics that is up for and can match the new strategic moment that we are in that moment is one in which there is a new global historical settlement which is neoliberal and necessarily neopatriarchal. So let's go to it. Thank you for listening. Thanks very much. That was very uplifting, actually. Um, everyone's been fantastic at keeping to time, so we have got 15 minutes for um, comments and questions. Um, we've got some roving mics, have we? Yes, we have, around here. And I wonder if people um, could just introduce themselves, just give us your kind of name when you, before you give us your sort of comment. Ah, yes. Um, hi, my name's Charlotte Riley. I'm a PhD student at UCL. Um, I come to quite a lot of these events at LSE, and this is the most, the biggest ratio of women to men I've ever seen in the audience. 
Bearing that in mind, if we're talking about budgeting for gender equality, how do we stop just talking to ourselves? And how do we talk about this as a problem that actually is important for men as well as for women, given especially that the coalition government has so few women in its ranks? Thank you. Thanks. Would you want to take a second? So yeah, let's have, were there um, any other hands? Any, any, anybody else immediately? Yes, thanks. Yep, okay, let's. Hello, I'm Gizam Jian. Um, I'm a master's student uh, here. Um, I'd like to thank you all of you for this inspiring and insightful um, conference. And my question is for Dr. Anisley. Um, how would you evaluate the impact of EU, EU's um, European employment strategy? on and their goals about increasing women employment and increasing gender equality on Britain, if, if you see if any impact on it. Thank you. Thanks very much. I think we've got, is that right? Yeah. Hi, um, my name's Nadia. Um, I'm a researcher for Housing Trust um, and I'm a campaign officer for Waltham Forest Women's Network. Um, I think my question, well, is, I think I'm looking for more your comments on what do you think about what the real impact will be on the ethnic minority women um, um, and, you know, how will it impact the services that are um, provided to them and what does this really mean? Thank you. Great, thanks. I might just take three because I can't keep them in my head, actually. Why don't we do three and then I'll come back. So, you know, keep your, keep your hands there when we come back. Would you like to? Um, I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy to start. Um, I'm, so, how do we stop talking to our, ourselves? I think it's a very important, a very very important question. Um, and I did I did some research on some of the welfare reforms that were um, the sort of welfare reforms for gender equality that were implemented under um, the Labour government. And um, one of my findings there was that um, it was that, that one of the important factors in, in getting these um, these uh, reforms through was having sort of strategic alliances with sympathetic men. So I think that that that's absolutely central for any kind of project of, of gender equality. And the way that I see gender equality is, you know, we called the Women's Budget Group, but actually we're um, an organisation that's concerned about gender equality, gender being the impact of measures on men and women. And if you know the the impact was um, was detrimental to um, to men, and I think that. That's an important thing to, to highlight as well. So I think sort of changing the language, or being explicit about how that, that gender is a, is about men and women, I think is um, is one of the um, important ways um, forward. Um, Sue mentioned the research that Jerome's done for us, and uh, we've also worked with um, Howard um, Reed to um, improve our analysis. And I think that um, you know, those kind of alliances are really important as well. I've had discussions with, with colleagues um, of mine about, you know, why was it that welfare state analysis um, uh, became so, so gendered? And um, the conclusion I came up to up with was, you know, it's because Esping Anderson took it on. So I think that, um, that uh, that's a slightly kind of um, flippant comment, but I, I, I think that um, uh, talking about uh, about gender as well as as women is important. Having sort of strategic alliances, um, combining the the strengths of research from gender scholarship and mainstream um, uh, scholarship, 
and um, and just kind of boring <laughs> all the men that we know about this and it was a wonderful moment um, back in October just after the comprehensive spending review where I was out for a Sunday walk and I was listening to a man behind me um, explaining to his wife why the comprehensive spending review was so bad for women and I kind of looked behind me I live in I live in Tatton constituency and I kind of looked behind me hoping that it would be George Osborne but <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it but it wasn't but I so I, I I think you know finding finding uh, um, a sympathetic man is, is is the first step um, um, and then I'll just respond quickly to the question of the um, of the impact of of the EU. I think that the EU is at the moment is potentially going to be an important. Sorry, I'm looking for the figure. Yeah, um, it's going to be an important ally in this um, in this project that that B outlined. I think that a lot of the gender equality um, um, progress that was made during the last Conservative government was as a, a consequence of. Um, of rulings that came from mm -hmm. the European mm -hmm. Union and that some of the work that I do for, um, with um, the European Commission is, is, is looking at um, some of the, uh, the documents that the governments produce in the open method of coordination and say to what extent these are adequate um, assessments of, of their gender equality policy. So I think, the, I think the European Union could be an important, another important ally in this, um, in this new stage of um, how did B call it? The new whatever. Whatever. This new project. <laughs> I'll just say one thing about the um, how do we stop talking to ourselves? I think that actually it's not clear to me that men particularly like the order that we have at the moment. There are a lot of men who are particularly younger men who <coughs> are saying that actually having a life is as important to them mm -hmm. as having as having a well paid job. And I think the the notion of having more time with your children, more time mm -hmm. with spending with your family, is a really important one that matters. You know, women have always known, and men are perhaps beginning beginning to get to know. And it seems to me it's very important that we mm -hmm. that we build a politics um, that's based on life as a as well as on you know how much you earn. And that's I mean that's also important for a green agenda as well. Um, so I would have thought mm -hmm. that there are there are alliances that we could. Can I? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just. Can I add to that? Yeah. Sorry, I've literally just got back from Seattle from a conference on busyness. You know, literally, it was called sort of busy busyness, no time for life, and it was a conference. Some sociologists, but a lot of people who work on designing computers and um, engineering and whatnot, and um, and it was basically, you know, I I sort of had to explicitly uh, introduce a gender. Um, a, uh, perspective into it, but I mean, basically, people were talking about men and women, as you say, about how the current order was one where they were too busy, didn't have time to reflect, and and for leisure. I have to say, I was hoping for some fabulous new designs, and I was a bit disappointed that some of the solutions were literally apps for iPhones, where where every sort of few hours the iPhone tells you to stop and take a walk or have a breath or whatever. And I <laughs> said to them I didn't have a lot of confidence in that technological solution, but at least that they were kind of addressing these problems. And it was certainly a lot of um, you know, young guys as well as um, women sort of concerned with that. Sorry, Sue, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was no. just going to say one very, I mean, very schematic thing about um, black and I think minority women, that a lot of the 
a lot of the factors that end up meaning that women do less than well than men or get hit particularly by cuts impact particularly on black and ethnic minority women. Now, we don't need to put them all into one lot because women from the Indian subcontinent are quite different from, say, Caribbean women. But um, some of the things, like particularly um, in a bit with childcare, for example, unless unless subsidies are very good, if you have a large family, they're really pretty hopeless, and that's much more likely to impact on a black ethnic minority woman. I mean, the even the the Labour government's childcare subsidies didn't go up for more than two children. If you you know the maximum you could get, you could get for two children, so, and so it was often literally not worth working if you if you had more children than that. There's also um, problems if you have, insofar as we move, up, move over more to, pu to personal provision and private sector provision, the less, the less one has a history of having been able to build up capital or labour market or the stage in the labour market, the more difficult life is going to be. Yeah. Uh, just to yeah. add, add to that point, because the Equalities Act requires the government to do an equalities impact that covers not only gender but race, disability, I think uh, one or two other things. And, and that's been you know, even worse. So if you look and see what they've done on, uh, on um, uh, equalities uh, impact on um, different ethnic groups, it's even worse than what they've done on um, mm. on, on men and women. And the issue of the intersection mm. between different kinds of equality, they haven't started to mm. address. And maybe, to some extent, this is also something one can do better from the bottom up. I've just seen a very interesting draft report, which I think is going to be released later this month, um, looking at the cuts in Coventry, which has mm. worked with uh, all kinds of uh, women's groups in the community with a strong representation of um, uh, women's groups and uh, ethnic, ethnic minorities. Uh, then looking from the bottom up, see these different kinds of cuts, some coming from the central government, some the local government, because its budget's been cut by the central government, what are they going to mean uh, for different groups? Housing is clearly an issue too, because insofar as you have a larger family and insofar as that might be associated with uh, some ethnic minorities, or by no means all, then what's happening on housing benefit is going to uh, have a particularly adverse impact. So I think this is a good thing we should be encouraging people to do throughout the country, looking from the grassroots up with uh, women's groups. So then you can get more um, fine grain, the sort of different, different groups of men and women, um, what's happening to them. But there are some that are definitely going to have a, a worse impact on um, black and ethnic minority mm. women. So I'm just conscious of time. I'm holding B back just for a moment. Can, can we just have a few of the people? There were some people who had their hands up before me and got, gosh, all right, well, can we, we just quickly... Comments? Sorry? Should we take some comments as well? Yes, absolutely, yes. No, absolutely. Yep. Okay, let's... Uh, hi, I'm Camilla from the Association of Young People's Health. Um, I'm a youth participation worker and we work with lots of vulnerable and excluded young women. So my question is, how do you see this as affecting young women? Um, and specifically, I was reading um, the consultation on strengthening women's voices in government and that seems to be like a prime example of where both vulnerable um, women and young women are going to be excluded from that discussion. 
Um, so I was just hoping you could maybe elaborate on uh, an economic um, standpoint on that. Thank okay. you. Um, chap over here. Hello, my name is uh, Gerard. I'm a MOS student here. Um, like what I've noticed, and uh, I kind of agree, especially with, with the evidence that was showed about the enemy and Thatcherism. Uh, I was kind of interested also in the political dimension because right now it's it's a coalition government and how do the Lib Dems fit in all this? And isn't that maybe also like your strategic, you know, the strategic partner to get on board? Because, well, at least like it, it's, for me it doesn't make sense at all why they like, maybe I'm not an expert on the Lib Dems, but it doesn't make sense for me why they would support a neoliberal or neopatriarchal agenda. Okay. Sorry, here can people be very brief, sorry, because I do want to get in a couple more people. Yeah. Uh, hello, my name is Zenish Tekle. I used to be here about 15 years ago, anthropology department. I've recently just moved back uh, from working in the Horn of Africa, mostly on gender issues. Um, I was just wondering, you mentioned that there are uh, groups in Tanzania and South Africa. Um, are your group involved in, in supporting um, this uh, uh, gender budgeting in anywhere in, in Africa? Um, if not, what kind of uh, support do you see uh, you can provide for uh, that part of the world? Sorry, I've got a couple down here. I, I was, oh. uh, Ruth, right. yeah, sorry, Ruth Van Dyke, South Bank University. Um, You've been going for a long time. I kind of wanted to know how much you had the ear of particular people within labor. Do you still have some of those? And you know, are there people within the other parties that are listening to you? So, so it's kind of like, you know, where are your ins? And did labor really listen to you? Because you've been doing this for a long time and had lots of really good evidence. But I think I might leave the questions with that. I'm really sorry for, you know, we're, we're having drinks afterwards, I'm going to invite you to, so maybe we could just give the speakers just a couple of minutes each. Because we have to wrap up in a few minutes. Shall I just say something about the last question, since it's on my mind, I'll forget the others. Um, and the others, the others can answer the others. But the, um, under Labour, we talk to them. They, they talk to us a lot. And your question about what impact we had is the one that we <coughs> continually asked ourselves. And we never really knew whether we actually <coughs> improved the policies or just improved the presentation of them. Um, and so it's, it's hard to know. The only policy on which we were ever told we had, had an impact was a change from a requirement for working tax credit, which some of you may know what it is. It's a, a credit that's paid to people who are in work. Um, where, there's a, where there was a supplement for if you're in full-time employment, and, would, and we got it changed so that those hours could be shared between two, two members of a couple rather than having to be held by one of them. Um, but, as I say, we just don't know. We do know, however, when people don't talk to us. And that's our current situation. Including <laughs> the Lib Dems. Yeah. I and mean, we've made a lot of efforts to reach out to um, Lynn... Uh, Featherstone. Featherstone. <coughs> in fact, she was invited here. And she, yeah. Yes, we yeah. tried to get her along to this meeting, but yeah. absolutely no, no response whatsoever. Um, I, th I think just in terms of political, mm. following on that mm. from political allies, I think the Lib Dems are a party of 
um, of individuals and um, and as a, a you know they don't see gender as an issue because they they see people as individuals taking individual responsibility and individual choices and um, there's a academic at uh, Kingston University called Liz Evans who did a PhD on on, um, on the Lib Dems and uh, the gender dimension um, within the Lib Dems and I think that was the kind of the key theme that came out of that. Mm. Okay, Briefly respond to the one on Africa? Yeah, very, very brief. Uh, just to say that um, I think it's more that we learn from groups in Africa. I think this is a, an area in the world where there's been enormous learning in the north from what happened in the South, because there's been a lot of very creative work done uh, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America. So what there are are email networks where you know, every day of the week I will have an email from somebody in some other part of the world that's working on these kind of issues, sharing strategies, techniques, and the United Nations, the United Nations agencies are doing a lot in terms of funding. Um, to support uh, groups like uh, TGMP in uh, South Africa and some of the bilateral funders. But what I think there is is a lot of mutual learning uh, from what, uh, what um, similar groups in other countries are doing. I think that's been one of the most creative things about it. And just on the young women, we're about to start a new project with um, Platform 51 to bring together a couple of groups of young women to talk about what... Uh, is the crisis and the cuts meaning to them? Uh, how can they develop their priorities? How can they maybe use things like the equalities duty uh, to push for changes that they'd like to see? A couple of thoughts. For the Liberal Democrats, apropos of your question, um, they're in a really tricky position. For them, it's the coalition or die. The coalition will kill them. It has killed them. They are almost dead. <laughs> and they will die. Uh, the, the coherent political party that they, we, we once thought they were. Uh, this is undoubtedly the case because they were the ones punished in the election. And they are split between, as it were, conservative, I mean, seriously liberal liberal Democrats and more socially Democrat. Liberal Democrats, and that cleavage has been resolved by their adhesion to the coalition. So it's a dreadful moment for the Liberal Democrats. They are finished. That's very interesting because what it takes the eye to is what the nature of conservatism now is. And I was just thinking in the wake of the local elections and, uh, you know, last week, not so much the AV result. But something very interesting is happening in these islands. And it also takes us, this thing that's, that's interesting, it takes us to some of your questions about men, what about men, men's, men's stake in the conversations that we've been having with, with each other today. Think about what happened in Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. These are all graveyards for the coalition and for the Conservative Party. They're really, really desperate. Famines of Toryism. A lovely conservative, Annabel Goldley, Gold, I mean, there are lovely conservatives, and she's a genial, clever, rather effective leader of the Scottish um, Conservatives, resigned this week because they did so badly and go on doing so badly. In Northern Ireland, the traditional, their version of a Conservative Party, the Ulster Unionist Party, has descended into what somebody described as, um, oh, 
something like bewildered, I don't know, oblivion, that's it. Um, their former greatness has become a kind of current nothingness. And the two parties that dominate Northern Ireland politics are absolutely, they're polarised, but they're absolutely rooted in popular class kinds of commitments. Wales the same, Labour's success in the Welsh, ele Welsh election um, is another index of the way in which these three nations cling to um, a social democratic ethos a kind of, not necessarily nationalism, because, you know, London smirks, ah, there won't be a referendum on Scottish independence. They're missing the point. Something interesting is happening in all of these places, and it is this, that their national cultures are embedded in class cultures. And the class resistance to the kind of stuff that the coalition is proposing, I think, um, is, is a really serious opportunity for them to learn what it is about feminism and women's experience that they need in order to really effectively challenge what the coalition is up to and, and to learn how to mobilize against it. And one final word is, you know, it is true, we are in the most dreadful situation, but it's completely new. We've never been here before, but we have never been here before and there's never been anybody like us before. So just as, as the coalition is having to make stuff up as it goes along, so are we. So dreadful as it is, it's an opportunity to create something very vigorous, very interesting, and better than we've ever done before. Is <laughs> <laughs> right. that <laughs> I'd like to thank the speakers and thank you all for um, coming and making it a very stimulating evening.